This episode begins the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser, which runs through the 10th anniversary of the show on Saturday, October 10th. Through all these years, the Permaculture Podcast remains largely listener-supported. Through your one-time and ongoing donations, you help cover server costs, allow me to visit events like the Mother Earth News Fair, or go on tours of permaculture sites to record in-person interviews, and for equipment and software upgrades that make those interviews easier to record and sound better each time. Through your reviews left on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or wherever else you catch the latest interview, sharing your thoughts let others know why you are inspired by the guests who appear on the show. Through your emails, phone calls, and letters asking me to cover a specific topic, to request or suggest a particular guest, or just to offer words of encouragement. You let me know directly why this work matters and how it has changed your life. This show would not be the longest-running podcast in the world, dedicated to the breadth of permaculture, if it wasn't for you. So I'm asking you for your continued support. Make a one-time donation online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also help people find the show by sharing your favorite episode with a friend, or leave a review on your favorite podcast site. You can also get in touch and let me know how I'm doing. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at permaculturepodcast.com. Together we can continue to make permaculture accessible around the world for another 10 years. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Laura Oldaney, a permaculture practitioner and the author behind the website Rich and Resilient Living, which focuses on how we can live a life and make financial decisions which lead to a regenerative future. Lara joins me as a sort of continuation of the conversation with Aaron Axelrod, but focusing on the individual rather than the organization. During our time together, Lara shares how we can make a difference by considering where our money sleeps, the ways to guide our finances toward banking and investment so our surplus provides benefits for our local communities, and the authentic abundance that comes from using our non-financial capital. Throughout it all, we also remember that the world we live in and our lives right now are in a period of transition, so we can and must be gentle on ourselves and our decisions. Enjoy this conversation with Laura, and I'll join you again after. Then, Laura, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background, and then we can talk about what we can do as practitioners to look at the world of finance and regenerative investing. Well, thank you for having me on the Permaculture Podcast today. I came to permaculture later in life at almost 40 years of age. And by that time, I already had years of experience and education behind me at, I guess, the nexus of international studies, education, and outreach. And so I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer, a fellow with the State Department. And then I had some jobs with nonprofits that were education-related and sent me overseas again. And so by the time I discovered permaculture, I had a a retirement account, an employer-based retirement account, and it got me thinking a lot more about what my money was doing in that retirement account that didn't align that well with what I was learning in permaculture. 
And as you were thinking about these ideas and with your understanding of permaculture, where did that lead you? I know you've got this great blog with all kinds of information, but were there steps that you were taking before you got there, like starting to move your money around, deciding to do like microfinancing or anything like that? Like, how did you move through this understanding? So initially, you know, just working within the parameters of what was, you know, what I had, which was this employer-based retirement account, there were some socially responsible funds. So I did move, you know, the majority of the money in that account into those funds, but I still didn't feel great about that. But I didn't know what else to do at that point. So I just left it there. And then eventually I had been living in Washington, D.C., and I decided to leave D.C. and spent a few years as a nomad, kind of going back and forth across the country, trying to figure out where I wanted to settle next. And while I was in San Francisco, I ended up at a slow money meeting. And I learned about self-directed retirement accounts at that meeting. And that was a huge paradigm shift for me, that there were retirement accounts in the United States that allowed you to invest, depending on who you opened them with, with almost any legal investment outside of collectibles like art and bottles of wine, life insurance, and certain types of, I think, S-corporations. And so people in um, the slow money North Northern California chapter were using their money to invest in their local food shed, which having been an active slow food member in Washington, D.C., really got my attention. And so at that point, I wasn't settled yet anywhere where I wanted to start to open a self-directed IRA account, but that idea stayed with me. And when I eventually did settle down here again in St. Petersburg, Florida, I happened to find a self-directed IRA company based in my area that had good reviews, you know, online. And, you know, I had a good feeling going into their on-site classes and So I went ahead and opened a self-directed IRA and then just started going down the rabbit hole of what are the investments that are open to me that align with my values as a non-wealthy, non-accredited investor. And so that's when I started blogging to share what I was finding with other people that weren't wealthy because it still feels like to me, it's not intentional per se. It's just the way things are with the regulations in place through the SEC and the IRS that regenerative investing in some ways is somewhat classist or elitist still because to have access to those truly regenerative investments, a lot of times you need really large amounts of money. And so I really wanted to dive into, so what else is out there for people like me? Because we still at lower end of the pyramid have a good bit of money when we collectively invest it. And so I started looking for those and compiling that on my blog. And before we get deeper into that, you mentioned socially responsible funds. To you, what does that mean? Like, What are the kinds of companies or resources that you're looking for when you look for something that you think of as socially responsible? When we talk about socially responsible investing in mutual funds, there's the SRI, which is the socially responsible investing, and then there are there's another acronym ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. And so those are different filters or lenses that are used with those funds. And so certainly these days, you know, all of that implies not investing in fossil fuels. 
And then the screens are different depending on the mutual fund, what they don't invest in. It might be not investing in tobacco or firearms. There are filters of exclusion. So you often end up still with companies like Chase, Bank of America, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, you know, companies that are shareholder. They're obviously their they're stock you're investing in a mutual fund and stocks. So it's shareholder driven and companies with large marketing budgets and pr producing and promoting products and practices that I imagine, like me, most of your listeners are not aligned with. And so even though those funds may be excluding a lot of these companies that have negative impacts, it's also not necessarily pushing our investments towards ones that have positive social or environmental returns. It's certainly not returns of that sort that outweigh the other <laughs> impacts the companies are having. The little bit of investing that I do, I, you know, there's Robinhood that allows people to do small scale investing without a lot of fees, which is something that Hunter Lovins had recommended for folks if they'd like to get involved in kind of this realm and that, you know, they're exchange traded funds that people can search for. But it all seems to be kind of a little bit here and a little bit there that. Like we haven't had a cohesive conversation about what this really looks like or the ways that we can try to make this kind of difference. I know for a long time in the beginning of a lot of this idea of socially responsible investing, there were like micro loans, and I think it was Kiva or something like that, where people could be putting money up directly for, you know, small projects and things like that. But I didn't see those necessarily as being useful for trying to build towards what our society requires for retirement. And as I said in the introduction to our interview, you know, investing still feels kind of weird because of the world that we're trying to move towards as permaculture practitioners. But I think back to a conversation with Taj Shukluna, uh, the permapixie, that she had introduced this idea broadly of, that we need to think about a, an ethic of transition. And that even though we might want to see a different world, that we do live in a place where we have to handle financial capital in addition to you know, our social and educational and other forms of capital as well in order to create feelings of stability and resilience. And that's where I'm interested in all this work that you've been doing is how can we do this in a way that feels good and still move towards this world that we want to see and this world that we want to live in? Well, Let's take a moment here to just state for, <laughs> for both of our sakes that neither one of us is a financial advisor. And so all of this is for educational and informational purposes only. You know, I'm happy to share what I found, but you heard my background. There was nothing mentioned about finance or business. This is all self-learned and self-experimentation. So please you know, if you're interested, dive down the rabbit hole yourself, do your own due diligence, ask questions. But neither one of us on this podcast is a financial advisor. <laughs> and if you know someone who is, you know, please feel free to run all of this information that we discussed today before you decide to make any decisions based on it. Yes. I think first I want to back up to that self-directed IRA. So that is something that's available to us here in the U.S., it's available to people who have IRAs with employers where they no longer work. If you have an IRA with a current employer, it's not something that is accessible to you. But if you have an IRA with a previous employer, you can 
look into converting that into a self-directed IRA. There are also solo 401ks. So I imagine here on the podcast in this country, we have lots of entrepreneurs and self-employed people. So solo 401ks will also allow you to pursue this type of investing. And I think structurally, they're just easier to navigate than self-directed IRAs. For your listeners in the UK, there are, um, I guess the acronym is SIPP, S-I-P-P, Self-Invested Personal Pensions, which I don't have a great deal of knowledge about, but I understand that they function similarly. So if you're looking to pursue this investing in a tax-advantaged way, those two accounts or those types of accounts are options in, in this country and in the United Kingdom. Obviously, you can pursue this type of investing outside of tax-advantaged accounts just regularly. It's just the, the tax implications are different. Some things, and again, I can speak best to what's going on in the US. I do have a few resources for options overseas that I can get into. I think we can start as simply even as just banking. Where is your money sleeping? There are more and more options to, you know, even if you can't afford to invest or you can't afford to donate, but you still have some savings, you could think about where you're saving that money. And I imagine many of the listeners are already in credit unions or socially responsible banks. But there are more options than just that, especially here in this country. We have minority owned banks. You know, One United Bank is the largest Black-owned bank in this country, and they direct a lot of their money to people of color. There are um, Latino credit unions, if you want to support that. There are Asian-owned credit unions. Here in the U.S., we have a Native American bank. It's called the Native American Bank. These communities that are underserved are largely underserved in resources. And having that capital sleep in their communities can do a tremendous amount of good. Um, It can have a lot of impact. So even just thinking about where your money sleeps, if you're overseas, you can look into the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. The acronym is G-A-B-V, again, Global Alliance for Banking on Values, and see if there are better bank options available to you. I know in Europe, there's Triodos Bank. So even just where your money sleeps can be a step of action. And I have the page pulled up on your website that lists a lot of the different impact banking resources that are available. And that's something that I'll link people to. But yeah, the idea of a credit union here in the United States was one of the first things that came to mind. I don't I don't remember if I belong to a regular bank anymore or not. I'll have to go through all that. But that was, you know, joining a credit union was one of those first options because it is community oriented. And I'm not suggesting anyone leave their credit union. Those are very good as well. And that's where um, the majority of money, my money is parked, especially if you're supporting your local community. But if you are looking for other options, and again, other ways to support communities in need, and maybe you can't afford to donate, but you have some money in an account that you could move, that's something you could do. Another thing, again, this isn't to shame anyone who has money invested in stocks or mutual funds or the system right now. You know, it's a starting place. And there, is, there are things you can do there. There is something called shareholder advocacy. You know, you have power through your shares. You can vote your shares. If you own through a brokerage firm, you know, you can talk to the fund advisor and make your concerns known. 
I link to some a tool on, on my website, and I can make sure to share that with you, Scott, as well, to educate yourself about what you can do as a shareholder. So there may be some value for some of us to continue owning stocks of those companies and actively use our shareholder advocacy voice. And then in terms of things that are coming online, I mean, it's more and more with crowdfunding regulations, you know, that came about here in the U.S., you know, four or five years ago, it really opened things up for investing in small businesses, you know, innovative startups that are trying to work towards the things we're looking at in our permaculture community. And I I imagine crowdfunding has been discussed a little bit on this show before. There are some very good websites. You know, we have WeFunder is probably one that is quite well known here in the U.S. and I think does one of the better jobs of vetting the offerings that they're putting out there. And of course, not all the offerings, probably not even the majority of offerings are things that would align with our permaculture values, but there are some. And again, it's about that transition, that ethics of, ethic of transition that you mentioned. And slow money is great. You know, look up slow money and see if there's an active slow money chapter in your part of the country and see if you can be investing in your local food shed. Michael Schumann, who's been a strong voice in our country for local investing, has just come out with a new book. I think it's called Put Your Money Where Your Life Is. And it's a great toolkit for looking at, you know, ways to invest locally, including just thinking about if you have friends or people in your circle that you feel have good money habits, but maybe they have some credit card debt, could you offer them a lower rate loan to help them get out of credit card debt? So it doesn't have to be that far away from you or that complicated. And then we have things like, again, here in the US, American Home Preservation, AHP, They're buying distressed mortgages and really working to help people stay in their homes. And they have an investing platform that returns about 10% annually. So it's a great mission and a, a decent return. And they truly are trying to keep people in their homes. Now, are they able to keep everyone if they can't pay? No, but they work a lot harder than most companies to to do that. So There are all kinds of interesting alternatives. In the UK, I've learned about the Stockwood Community Benefit Society, which is a community-owned property and land trust that's offering a 5% return on investment. So again, that's Stockwood Community Benefit Society. And in Australia, I saw David Holmgren recommend in Retro Suburbia, or at least mention, this Australian-based organic investment cooperative or a co-op. So the name says it all, organic investment cooperative. It looks like it's investing in organic farms. So more and more of these options are coming together. You know, and I welcome people to my site to look for sources, to do their own digging, and to think about creating these opportunities. One of the investments I've made here locally is that Corrine Brennan of Grow Permaculture, one of our premier permaculture instructors here in Florida, 
took on a farm and she has structured it with shareholders and investors. And so my boyfriend and I bought a share of the permaculture farm. And so we have a stake in this farm. We'll get a financial return, but we also have, you know, wonderful returns, you know, even before that. Now, investing through a self-directed IRA, I am not technically able to reap these additional returns. But if someone did this outside of a self-directed IRA, you know, I can take free permaculture classes there. I can go up and visit and stay the night. I can go, I could go up and, you know, learn about plants or maybe even get some free plants. So I think the opportunities are, are available to us to think of these innovative structures. Part of my challenge is finding meaningful investments to invest in. Now, this is an an open call to (laughs) contact me and ask to invest, but I do think that coming up with these investments and thinking about the fact that these self-directed IRAs exist and more and more people are learning about them, more and more people are looking for meaningful investments to make, and even outside of self-directed IRAs. This interest in socially responsible investing, the data is showing, especially among millennials, is rapidly increasing. And so people are looking for these opportunities, and those of us in the permaculture regenerative space that can create them can do people a great service. What you were saying there about being able to go to the farm and take classes and to stay the night there, you know, one of our simplest forms of reinvesting in our local food shed is to look for CSA shares with farms that are doing work that we believe in, finding out what their agricultural practices are, if they're doing things like integrative pest management, not using synthetic fertilizers and things like that, that just a CSA share is a real simple investment that we might not normally consider. But you also touch on the ways that our impact can be greater than just the financial return. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about non-financial capital and the ways that that can help build greater resilience in our life and a feeling of abundance. Yes, happy to do that. So often in permaculture, the presumption is automatic that abundance is inherent in the landscape in our gardens. But then if the conversation turns to money, and that finances and economics pedal, that presumption of abundance seems to diminish significantly. And I think that these multiple forms of capital or the eight forms of capital as they've been most frequently talked about in the permaculture space. I know Ethan Rowland has been on your show before. I think they're a great kind of maybe gateway or you know just another form of capital to help us feel more abundance in our lives. So we've talked a great deal today already about financial capital, which is the form of capital I think most people initially think of. But then we also have, I'll just quickly go through the others and give a few examples. We have material capital, which is our homes or our cars or our computers or our shovels, the physical things that we use. We have intellectual capital which is the knowledge that we have, you know, what we've learned in school, our innovation and creativity. We have experiential capital. So maybe if, you know, we've read about how to fix a bike and we think, okay, I know the steps I actually need to do. We've exercised our intellectual capital, 
but it's at that time when we go out and we bend down and we get our tools and we actually fix the bike that we're increasing our experiential capital. So it's that actual hands-on experience of doing something, that kind of capital that these are all important in permaculture, but I especially think of experiential capital in permaculture, social capital, which you've already mentioned. It's our networks, it's our connections, our families. It's if we're you know involved in a church or a school or whatever community we're involved in, it's that social capital which is so so important in building resilience in our lives. And then there's living capital, which we in permaculture know so well, our fruit trees, our perennial plants, the shade that the trees are giving us, that living capital, I think we know very well, the water, cultural capital. So that's the culture that comes collectively through our history, our songs, the movies we gravitate to, the food we eat, and then spiritual And so this doesn't necessarily need to be a a religious-based capital, but it could be your yoga practice or your, you know, however you feel connected to the universe. And so those are the multiple forms of capital. And when we think about money, the financial capital, financial capital is this means of exchange that we've all agreed on in our society as the access point to getting what we need. And what we really want and need, if you back up and look at those other forms of capital, are actually all of those other forms of capital. And so, if we can find ways to access those other forms of capital, either for less money or no money, I think we tremendously increase our resilience and our wealth. And so, you know, these ideas, they're not new to permaculture, other groups and look at them, but I think they're so, so important, especially when we step back and realize, looking at all those forms of capital, that financial capital is probably the least resilient of all those forms of capital. It's highly speculative and volatile. And so, I think inherently in permaculture, we, we recognize that, and that's why we gravitate to so, so much in permaculture. And it was actually my permaculture design course about 10 years ago that really opened my ideas to, to thinking more about more tangible wealth. You know, the idea of the tractor as an investment or equipment as an investment investment, the tools that jewelry maker invests in, and all of these other forms of capital, well, I don't want to, you know, make them feel like it's all transactional with them, but they're a safety net for us, I think. And if we need to, we can look to them and they can all be converted into financial capital. And I think, you know, initially financial capital emerged from the extraction of living capital and all of these other things, and they were converted into financial capital. But green pieces of paper and small pieces of metal don't inherently bring us joy. They're not, you know, what we want. We don't necessarily want to sit around rubbing green and white paper on our skin. It doesn't bring us that much pleasure. But the things that bring us pleasure and joy and meaning in our lives are these other forms of capital. They, they very much increase our quality of life. And it's one of the thoughts that I've had for some time is that money became a 
shorthand way to express all of these different relationships and to simplify interactions to the point that we forget the story that created money and the way that, you know, you read something like David Graeber's debt, the first 5,000 years, or you speak to someone who's not an economist about like the role of money within society. And it's about relationships. It's about the ways in which you know, you helped me and I helped somebody else. Well, now that person owes me something. I owe somebody else something. But rather than being favors and those forms of exchange, money became the way that we handled those interactions. But yeah, now we're so far removed from that, that money seems to be a goal and an end unto itself, as opposed to all these relationships that kind of gird and underlay it. Yes. I agree. And I guess I would also like to add, because we ta- you led us into this conversation, part of the conversation by talking about ab- abundance. And I really like how Ethan and Gregory in their book, Regenerative Enterprise, the subtitle of that book is Optimizing for Multi-Capital Abundance. You know, when we talk about financial capital, we talk about a diverse portfolio. We want to have a variety, have our money variety, allocated in a variety of different places. And I really think that this idea of optimizing for multi-capital abundance and looking at how we can strengthen these other forms of capital in our lives can, again, like I said, it's, it's a broader, more expansive view of wealth that can be, I just think it, it's more of a safety net. It gives us a richer feeling without necessarily having to feel like we need to go out and earn more financial capital. And this goes back to some of the conversations that I've had with Ethan Hughes or my interview with Annie Racer Roland about frugal hedonism. I've spent the last 10 years creating this show, most of it well, well below the poverty line financially. But because of the people I knew and the networks that I had, and granted, these are the kinds of things that can take time to build up to know where the right people are, who you can lean into, where the you know, free or inexpensive resources are in your community and how to get there and utilize them. But like, I never worried about going hungry. I always had a roof over my head and my basic needs were always met. I may not have always had excess, but my basic needs were met in that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy kind of way and was always able to continue this kind of work regardless of like the situation that I found myself in. Yes, there were some times that I needed to ask for help and reach out to others, but having this network of people around me, having this understanding of the different forms of capital, like my basic needs were always met. I think you just used that word enough. And I I definitely want to emphasize this, you know, even in that earlier part of the conversation, when we were talking about investing this, it's not about becoming permaculture billionaires or millionaires. It's about getting ourselves and our communities to enough you know, and redistributing that surplus and having that, having meaningful ways and things to distribute that surplus into when that surplus is financial capital. You know, Bill Mollison, one of the co-originators of permaculture, there's a recording of him, I believe, in 1983 at a PDC charging us to become political and financial units and to become bankers, permaculture bankers. Because when we in permaculture have that money in our hands, we can redirect it to redistribute the surplus and we can do it in regenerative ways. And so I think, you know, there's a mindset often among people within the sustainability space 
to back away from money, that it's evil. And I'm not saying that there aren't horrible things going on with money, but we can step up and think of ways to do better things with it. And that's where I think it's chapter 14 of the designer's manual gave us an outline as permaculture practitioners of all kinds of alternative economic systems, different ways we could view politics, but it felt like it was there as a footnote to be returned to later, but that the work of permaculture in the landscape is what took the next 30 years of development. And it's only been in the last maybe five years or so that we're really digging into these conversations about, okay, we know how to grow food, we know how to care for the landscape, and we're continuing to share that information. How do we use that resiliency and everything else we've learned in order to reshape our society and our culture? And that's where conversations like this are really important because we can reach out to you know, the president of our credit union and ask, where are you investing our money? How is this directed? As you say, we can work on self-directed IRAs in order to have greater impact in our communities that now we're at a place where we can take permaculture and activate it further in the way that it reaches out into the world at large and expand the language we can use to talk to policymakers, to people engaged in finance and other portions of our society that are disconnected from the landscape and agriculture. Very well stated, Scott. And with everything that you've done, We've talked about credit unions and self-directed IRAs. You're part of, is it the next egg um, that Aaron Axelrod had talked about? Could you share a little bit about that with us? So it's a wonderful initiative spearheaded by the Lyft Economy, of which Aaron is part of, and the Sustainable Economies Law Center and Michael Schumann. And it they offer an online forum as well as generally monthly, but sometimes even more seminars, you know, webinars related to the challenges of pursuing this type of investing through a a self-directed retirement account or a solo 401k. And it's a great space to learn about. I've learned about a number of the investments I've made, you know, through the conversations I've had on the forum or what I've heard in the webinars. And it's, a very helpful tool because these self-directed IRAs have existed since I believe the 70s. Most people that use them have used them for real estate investing, you know, with their retirement funds, which is another thing that another area that might be of great interest to people in permaculture. Maybe this is a way we can get more land in the hands of permaculturalists is, you know, by buying it through our self-directed IRAs. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a great forum for those of us that are learning and, and navigating this because this way of investing in general, this more socially responsible um, local investing is new and emerging on, the, on a larger scale. And especially when it comes to trying to do this through a tax advantaged retirement account. So it's a very, very helpful space. And is that something that other folks can get involved in and be part of those conversations, or is it still kind of in development for a closed group? No, it is open. They're seeking new members. It They do have a $9.99 a month monthly fee, but I believe they can waive it for people that can't afford to pay that to help cover their costs to put that on. Um, so it's, it's definitely worth contacting Aaron or someone else at The Next Egg about it. 
And yes, yeah, since I just had Aaron on the show recently, I will point folks um, to those resources and that conversation as well. With everything that we've covered, for people who want to get involved today in making a difference with their financial choices, do you have just a handful of recommendations that you would make quick action points that people could do you know, today or within the next week to start making a difference in their own lives and those of others? So, you know, the the impact banking, I think, is the gateway we've already talked about. I would look into that, check out the Global Alliance for Banking on Values if you're overseas. Just Google searching of local investing in, in wherever, whatever country you live in and, and see what comes up and engage in conversations, you know, in the next egg. If you're looking for a free space to engage in these conversations and you do use Facebook, there's a Facebook group called Socially Conscious FIRE, F-I-R-E, that acronym stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. So that's people who are in, you know, have a little bit of money, but want to steward it in conscious ways. And again, that's another space I've learned about these types of investments. And I think even just exposing yourself to these conversations in this way of thinking is very helpful. And I would also say, because I think maybe even among our younger listeners, those coming out of college with a lot of student loan debt, I don't want to debt shame anyone. But getting ourselves out of debt is crucial. And just working on that, I don't have them off the top of my head or the time to list them all. But if your listeners want to contact me, you know, if they're in debt and they want some good websites, they, you know, they're not permaculture oriented, but at this point, you just need to get yourself out of debt. We want to get you to a state of agency and stability. So, you know, I'm glad I, I got the opportunity to say this because I don't want this conversation to be a presumption that you already have, you know, savings to invest. You may need to get yourself to that state. And so first it starts with getting yourself out of debt. Then it starts with obtaining a yield, earning some money where you have enough and you're hopefully doing it in a regenerative way, earning that money where you can set it aside and start saving it. So, you know, let's back it up a little bit, like I said, to even just getting out of debt and starting to save. And then please come to my website. There are many more things I've started investing in that Scott, I imagine, will link to some of the articles I've written about what I'm investing in and, and read the blog post and expose yourself to those ideas and resources more. And in the few minutes that we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You said you used the words investing for retirement, which is certainly what we were talking about. I think that what I would like to see more of in the permaculture space is more of a conversation about permaculture and retirement, permaculture and aging. And so I'm going to put that request out to your listeners to plant that seed. I think that David Holmgren's book that I just mentioned earlier, The Retro Suburbia, it's not exactly that, but I think it's a great contribution to that conversation to get us thinking about how are we designing our spaces, our physical spaces where we live and our yards and our relationships within our communities and our wealth to, to age and, and, you know, for some of us age in place or just think about if we're nomads, what is that going to look like? So I'd really like to see more conversation about 
permaculture and retirement or permaculture and aging. And if anyone's been thinking about that or knows anyone who's writing about it, please let us know. And we can certainly have some interviews about that in the future. But Laura, thank you so much for joining me today and everything you've shared and begun this process of demystifying personal finance and the impact that we can have through our choice in investments. It's been my pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And that was Laura Oldaney. Find out more about her and her work at richandresilientliving.com. With everything she mentioned, the resources section of this episode contains a large number of links to specific articles on Laura's site, as well as to the many organizations and investment thoughts in this episode. Drawing on his experiences as a permaculture practitioner and sustainable architect, Jeff Christou shares a dream of what could be in his novel Utopia, a permaculture vision. Experience a civilization built using permaculture principles. Find out more and pick up a copy of the ebook today at permacultureutopia.com. Stepping away from this interview, though I'd love to live in a world where abundance is the rule and there isn't a need to invest to prepare for the later stages in life or to ask for investment to sustain our projects, as we open the conversation, I accept we're in a period of transition to the world we want to live in. As permaculture practitioners creating abundance for ourselves, in this time we can also help others create similar opportunities in their lives by using every form of capital at our disposal and sharing what we have with others. But that's just my thought. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day investing in your life and your community while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.